good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to uh, session three and our, our final um, session together. Uh, you've got a few notes on uh, your handout on uh, the last page, and we're going to be in uh, 1 John chapter 1 this morning. And as we come to the end of our time together this weekend, and by the way, this has been a, a, such a, a joyful weekend for me and uh, for my family. Thank you so much for your invitation uh, again and um, your kindness and welcome and hospitality. It's been a joy for us to be with you. But I want to ask the question this morning as we come to a close. What should we expect our experience of joy to be in the Christian life? What should we expect our experience of joy to be in the Christian life? Is it reasonable to expect maximum joy all the time, as much as we have capacity for? Should we feel that in terms of our kind of scale that we looked at yesterday morning, kind of one to ten, should we always feel like we are at ten on our joy scale? Should we expect to feel joyful just some of the time? Is that a more reasonable kind of expectation for the Christian life? Should we expect to feel ten some days, kind of three other days, kind of up and down, depending on what's going on? Or should we just be holding on and waiting for the new creation? Is that what we, are, uh, is that what we should expect in terms of the day-to-day Christian life together? We're not going to feel much joy now because this life and this world is hard. Joy is coming later, and we should just be holding on until then. Different Christians, I think, would answer that question differently. What I want to do is I I want to spend a few minutes this morning in 1 John chapter 1 trying to root and anchor our joy in something, in something that feels um, more tangible. I want us to root and anchor our joy. And there's a striking phrase that John uses. Uh, You probably noticed it uh, as we went through. In verse 4, he says this, We write this to make our or your joy complete. That's striking, isn't it? John is talking about complete joy. There's something going on here that he wants his readers to know and notice, that there is complete joy uh, in the Lord Jesus. And through the chapter, there are two aspects of joy that uh, he highlights And uh, he brings to the attention of his hearers and two aspects of joy that I want to leave with you this morning. Joyful church and joyful people. Joyful church and joyful people. And holding those two things together, John shows us where completeness, uh, where a totality of joy is to be found. Let's start in verses 1 to 4 with the joyful church. Uh, and the joy of our fellowship with God, the joy of our fellowship with God. Now, I know that to talk about a joyful church um, might be a harder sell today in the popular imagination than it used to be. I reckon maybe 20, 25 years ago, the kind of biggest problem with church in uh, the kind of popular imagination um, was that it was perceived to be boring. Some of us might remember um, the name Noel Edmonds uh, from kind of 20, 30 years ago. If if you've never heard his name before, 
Noel Edmonds was the king of Saturday Tea Time TV in uh, this country, kind of back in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, it was in the days when there were only four channels you could choose from on TV, and everyone got home on a Saturday, and everyone was watching the same thing on a Saturday. So at six o'clock on a Saturday evening, everyone in the country was watching Noel Edmonds. He was one of the most recognizable people uh, in the UK. Uh, and as the king of light entertainment, he once said uh, that church is the dullest experience that we have in this country. And his, his words gave voice to a kind of popular opinion, uh, that church is a bit of a kind of a slightly odd hobby, uh, an hour on a Sunday morning that's basically kind of incomprehensible, uh, where leaders are kind of wearing fancy dress, and uh, the preaching is kind of irrelevant, and there are some strange rituals that are slightly inaccessible, um, and the people who are there are basically uninterested, but they think they ought to be there. More recently, uh, things have changed. Increasingly, church is perceived less to be boring uh, and is perceived perhaps more as uh, something that might be dangerous, perhaps because of kind of theological commitments and practices that sharply diverge from what happens outside the church, perhaps because of the tragic and lamentable stories of abuse that have come to light in recent years, but perhaps especially in churches that seem to be doing so well in all sorts of ways. Now, what do we do when we're tempted to kind of feel like that about church, and yet the Apostle John is writing about joy and joy in church? Let's see what he says as he roots uh, joy in church. Now, his, his writing has been, uh, the Apostle John's writing has been described as being like a, a spiral. Um, ideas are repeated. Um, he kind of, he writes about something, then he moves on to something else, and then he comes back to an idea that he had just been uh, talking about. And in verses 1 to 4, there are three ideas that are kind of repeated. So have a look at verses 1 to 4. And the big ideas in these four verses are eternity, history, and testimony. Eternity, history, and testimony. And verse 1 starts with eternity, that which was from the beginning. There are echoes of John's gospel here. In the beginning was the word, and the idea is the same. We're being taken outside of time itself and into eternity, that which was from the beginning. And the remarkable claim that he makes is that eternity has appeared in history. John must be writing these words with a, a sense of awe and wonder uh, in his mind uh, as the magnitude of the incarnation of Jesus is in his mind. That which was from the beginning, eternity, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Eternity has appeared in history, and uh, eternity has been made known in history and can be made known not just to the apostles, but through their proclamation to all of us. So this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And then he kind of goes around again in verses 2 and 3. The life appeared, eternity, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. Eternity, history, proclamation. And the amazing thing uh, that John claims 
is that through the proclamation of the apostles, through their testimony, anyone who believes is drawn into fellowship. So verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's a, a breathtaking claim that he makes. That at the heart of the universe, there is a God who is Father. There is a God who is Father, a God who defines what fatherhood is, even though our own experience is so often less than what it should be. But that God who is Father has existed in all eternity with his Son. There's a guy, um, a German uh, theologian who's uh, not uh, massively kind of well-known today, even uh, in theological circles, I think, but who's had a really striking story. He, he lived um, uh, through World War II. His name was Helmut Thielicke, and uh, he was a, a kind of theologian and a church pastor uh, in Stuttgart during World War II. And he, he was in Stuttgart um, and uh, kind of preaching and ministering to a church um, at a time when uh, the city was going through a, a devastate, devastating bombing campaign at the hands of the kind of allied forces. Uh, and just as um, that was happening around him, just as the kind of uh, destruction of war was being made very um, clear and obvious in the city where he lived, it, he began to preach uh, a series of sermons on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, these are the words that uh, he started uh, his series with. Uh, the history of the world, taken as a whole, is a history of war, deeply marked by the hoofprints of the apocalyptic horsemen. It's the story of humanity without a father, or so it seems. John writes that at the heart of the universe is an extraordinary fellowship, a father-son in uh, the uh, joy of the Holy Spirit existing together through all eternity. And uh, because of the love that exists between them, we are drawn through the Apostles' proclamation into fellowship with the Father and the Son. That's an extraordinary claim, that you and I are drawn into fellowship uh, with the Father and the Son. Now, what does all of that um, have to do uh, with joy? What does it all have to do with church? Well, it, it, here's, I think, the this, this simple kind of outbox and application for us. The uh, fellowship between the Father and the Son that we are drawn into is the primary way that we ought to think about our church. On lots of levels, uh, churches look like um, many other human organizations, don't they? Um, there are things that need to be organized. There are, there are budgets that need to be settled and agreed. There are uh, committees, and uh, because we are part of the Church of England, there are ecclesiastical laws and hierarchies that need to be uh, borne in mind day to day. But essentially... Fundamentally, the church isn't any of those things. Sunday by Sunday, we ought to tell ourselves that when we arrive at church, whether we're part of the morning congregation or it there in the afternoon, 
uh, that this is the gathering of the people who belong to our Heavenly Father. That's what we're coming to. That's what we are being drawn into. This is the fellowship of people who belong to our Heavenly Father, the gathering of people who have received eternal life in Jesus, the people who have fellowship with God. That's what the church is. I wonder how you feel uh, about church week by week. I mean, I guess that we're all here on, on the church weekend away, so, so most of us feel like mo- generally positive about church, otherwise we probably wouldn't be here, right? But um, I, I imagine that for all of us, and for all sorts of reasons, uh, our relationship with church can feel quite mixed, can be quite um, d- difficult even, and perhaps we don't often experience or, or sense joy uh, as much as uh, we would like. So what do we do about that? Let me give us just one uh, suggestion. I've noted on uh, your outline, Acts chapter 11, verses 22 uh, and 23. Uh, we often uh, read the book of Acts, that amazing narrative of the, the start of the church as it's um, uh, going throughout the whole um, of the known world. Um, uh, and we're often stirred, as we do so, for evangelism and outreach. But this is a really striking moment in the history of the church that often gets overlooked. Uh, Barnabas, who's one of the apostolic uh, team, who's a a colleague of the Apostle Paul, he arrives um, at a church, uh, and this is what uh, we are told. News of uh, this, which is a kind of persecution that's broken out against the church, uh, reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas arrives uh, at a church uh, that's going through a really difficult time, uh, and uh, he doesn't arrive with a a 12-point action plan uh, about what the church needs to do and put right uh, to get going again. Uh, He doesn't develop uh, a church vision statement or a mission statement, which is what I think many of us would think might be needed. What does he do? Uh, We're told that he was glad and encourages. Barnabas is an encourager, and he encourages. And look at the consequence of his encouragement. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. People are drawn to the gospel because of one person doing some encouraging. I've read lots of books on evangelism. It's part of the job in in lots of ways, and there are lots of good books to read on evangelism. I, I don't know many books on evangelism where someone has said, be an encourager and see what happens. But Barnabas encourages, and people are drawn to the Lord. So uh, that snapshot of just two verses in Acts gives us an amazing picture of what happens to a a church's spiritual health and people's joy when someone encourages. So let me leave you with this. If your relationship with church is not quite what you think it should be, if you're struggling to find joy uh, in your church, can you be someone who encourages? What would it look like for you this week to offer some encouragement? Imagine what effect it might have if you resolved 
to encourage one person in your uh, home group, small group. I'm not quite sure what they're called. Inspire groups, thank you. Imagine if you offered uh, one person encouragement in your Inspire group this week. Or you resolved next Sunday that you were going to be at church and offer some encouragement to the person sitting next to you. That you, uh, whoever it is, uh, when you arrive. Now, it, it might take some thoughts. It might take some planning. I imagine, like me, encouragement doesn't come naturally to us. Even for Christians who have a teapot face and naturally seem to be full of the joy of the Lord, encouragement doesn't feel easy. But just imagine what effect might happen. Just imagine the spiritual vibrancy. If Inspire St. James was a place where people offered encouragement, who were committed to encouraging one another. So theologically, we are the fellowship of uh, people who belong to Jesus Christ. Let's see what would happen if uh, we encourage each other to know that joy. If we encourage each other in the Christian life and the joy that might exist between us uh, as a result. Joyful Church, um, I just noted uh, on your uh, handout some of the joys of encouragement. I, I haven't got time to go through them at this point, but they're taken from a book that I've um, stuck on your recommended reading list, The Happy Christian by David Murray. Uh, he spends quite a lot of time thinking about what encouragement might look like. If you want to think that through further, uh, get a copy of David Murray's book, Happy Christian. Joyful Church. Uh, secondly, uh, joyful people. Come back to uh, 1 John uh, chapter 1. And in verses 7, uh, we are told about the joy of walking in the light. Let me read verses 5 to 7. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sin. Now, fellowship with God sounds wonderful in verses 1 to 4. Um, but in that um, context, verse 5 might come as something of a surprise. As John sticks a kind of big headline in verse 5, uh, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. We might have expected John to start with God is love. If you know the letter of 1 John, he, he does come to that later on. He will say God is love, but he doesn't start there. He says God is light. And he doesn't mean um, the light of knowledge and knowing something. We often talk about um, a light bulb moment, don't we? Or uh, you know, we were, um, we were in darkness and then uh, we found out some new information and all of a sudden we were in the light. John's not talking here about light and darkness in that sense. This isn't about understanding and ignorance. He's writing about good and evil. And to say that God is light is very good news. It means that in this universe, or, uh, evil and injustice are, are not um, the kind of fundamental heart of the universe. Evil and injustice won't last. And precisely because God is light, we uh, don't understand their presence. In, in a universe where God is light, evil and injustice don't make sense. 
But of course, if God is light, we should think to ourselves, how is it possible for us to have fellowship with him? Because we know that the darkness that he will judge, it it isn't just out there. It's not just in other people. It's not just in other places uh, around the world, uh, but is also in here. To change the, the image uh, slightly, and because we've been through COVID and a global pandemic and know all about the importance of hygiene and washing our hands, it, you could say that God's light, the light of a, a pure and holy and entirely perfect God exposes our uncleanness. Maybe you know that sense of of what that kind of feels like. Perhaps you know what it's like when you, I don't know, you you post something on social media, and um, you're kind of doing it slightly maliciously. And after you've done it, you just kind of recognize um, in yourself something that you kind of feel like shouldn't be there, a slight sense of, I don't know, kind of venom that you see inside yourself. Or, or maybe you're, you're nursing a, a grievance uh, or some bitterness uh, against somebody, and you kind of surprise yourself by kind of how deep that grievance seems to go. You just can't kind of get past it or, or put it behind you. Maybe you're... Um, find that you're spending more and more time day by day and week by week on um, the veil of tears that's known as rightmove.com and you just recognize kind of in yourself a deep sense of discontent you're not happy you're constantly looking for for more and you just notice that there's something kind of going on inside yourself that's kind of pushing and driving that that most of the time you're kind of oblivious to but there is some kind of poison that's kind of within that that you can't quite shake. Jesus himself in Mark's gospel uh, says that it's not that which comes from outside that makes someone unclean, but that which comes from within. And you kind of see that about yourself, and you kind of wonder, God is light, so I'm exposed, can I ever be clean? Uh, Surprisingly, John says, uh, religion um, is no help uh, to us. Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live out the truth. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we claim we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. In recent years, we've seen how religion itself has been used as a veneer, a kind of spiritual veneer for all sorts of evils and sins, whether it's ethnic nationalism in Russia that's kind of upheld by a kind of nationalistic church whether it's uh, racism in all sorts of places uh, around the world that seems to have the stamp of approval of institutional uh, religion. John says religion itself won't help us be clean. There's only one solution. 
Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Blood is um, Bible language for a violent death. And so John uh, here means uh, the violent death of Jesus at Calvary. The man Jesus of Nazareth, who is the eternal son of God, is the perfect sacrifice for sinners. That's there at the cross. He takes upon himself the punishment for sin that we rightly deserve, such that that ugly, cruel death that he dies is the most glorious news in the entire world. That Jesus does something for us in his death that we could never do and brings cleansing from all our sin. Cleansing that washes the foulest clean. Cleansing that means every bitter thought, every evil deed crowns that blood-stained brow, as one song puts it. Now remember, John is writing these words as reassurance. He's writing these words as reassurance for people who are walking in the light. So when we feel exposed, when we have that conviction that we need cleansing, that's an evidence and a consequence of a life that's already been made clean. Now, again, how does this all connect with joy? What does it mean for our joy? How does it work out in joy uh, for us. I, I recently came across a project, I think it's um, just only a couple of uh, months old, called um, the Big Joy Project. Uh, it's developed by um, UC Berkeley's uh, Science Center, uh, University of Berkeley in California uh, in the States. It's a project that aims to develop happiness, connection, resilience, and kindness for everyone. The project tracks what will happen uh, to the well-being of people who practice daily micro-acts of joy. Uh, so they set people a challenge that for seven days, uh, to set aside seven minutes a day uh, to do something joy-focused. These are some of the things that they encourage people to do. Uh, day one, you listen to a recording of people laughing. Uh, day two, uh, you celebrate someone else's joy. So you kind of find someone who's got some good news in their life and you celebrate uh, their joy uh, with them. Day three uh, is reciting uh, a prayer um, that was uh, written by uh, an Anglican archbishop and a Buddhist together, so everyone can get on board uh, with it. Uh, day four is um, making a, a list of things that we have uh, to be thankful for. Uh, days five, six, and seven are even more kind of out of whack, so I won't tell you what they are. But if you do want to go and have a go at the Big Joy Project, feel free. There are, I think, nearly half a million people around the world who are currently participating. I think that the Big Joy Project would have a, a serious problem with where the Apostle John lands in verses 8 to 10. Have a look at verses 8 to 10. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Here's an astonishing insight that John makes. Joyful people grow out of a confession of sin. Joyful people grow out of a confession of sin. 
And confession of sin isn't, uh, remember, we're not trying to make a, a deal with God. God's not the kind of uh, uh, loving Heavenly Father that, that we need to try to manipulate or, or kind of um, persuade to, to get on side. Uh, we're confessing our sin. Why? Because we know that the blood of Jesus purifies us from every sin. The gospel frees us, liberates us to confess our sin, to say we know that we're not the people we should be. We know that we need cleansing. We know that the only place to go for cleansing is the cross. It liberates us uh, from the need to pretend, whether it's pretending to ourselves, pretending to each other, pretending to God himself. One person who, who knew a lot uh, about the need for confession in the Bible was uh, King David uh, in the Old Testament. King David, one of the great figures of the Old Testament, but lived a deeply, deeply messy life, a life that was characterized by the destructive power of uh, sin. Uh, he writes these words in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. Brothers and sisters, aren't those words to give us deep joy? Knowing uh, who we are, knowing what our hearts are like, knowing uh, the darkness within, uh, and knowing that the Lord does not count our sin against us. We write this, John says, to make your joy complete. Joyful church, encourage one another. Joyful people are people who confess their sins and repent. And that applies um, not just uh, on a Sunday morning. We've said a confession already this morning, which is a good thing to do. Uh, you might know in, in the church calendar that uh, Ash Wednesday is only 10 days away and the season of Lent in the Church of England, we talk a lot about repentance uh, through the season uh, of Lent. John doesn't just have in mind the kind of 40 days before Easter as a kind of time to repent. He, he's talking about a, a, a life of repentance, a, a life that's lived where we don't need to prove ourselves uh, or our own rightness to God or to each other, a, a life where we are enabled and liberated to say uh, to those that we love, to those that we're close to, to those in our church, I, I, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I'm, I made a mistake. Uh, the gospel frees us to be people who are able to confess to each other rightly and appropriately, where we know that our sin has caused damage. The gospel frees us in our relationships with each other to say, it, it was my fault. Please, would you forgive me? We live in a world... So I'm sure you know where the typical apology now goes, uh, I am sorry if you felt upset. Where people are unable to take responsibility for the wrongs that they have done against each other. Friends, that shouldn't be the case for us. The gospel tells us, John uh, tells us that we are those who have fellowship with the Father already. He tells us that we are those uh, who have been made clean by the blood of Jesus. That every sin, every thought, every deed that you have ever done is covered by the blood of Jesus. And so you have forgiveness. Therefore, 
we should be those who are able to say sorry, to repent, to say, I'm sorry I was wrong. Please would you forgive me? We write this to make your joy complete. Joyful church, joyful people. As I close, let's, um, let's take a moment of quiet um, just to reflect in the silence, to ask the Spirit where there might be particular areas of our own hearts and lives uh, where we need um, his forgiveness, his cleansing, whether that's personally, uh, individually, whether that's uh, corporately for us as a church. We'll have a moment of quiet, uh, then I will pray for us, uh, and then we will say the Apostles' Creed together. Let's take a moment of quiet.